Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from... I'm getting a funny look from you right now. From everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the Ask Christopher West podcast. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Hi, podcast listeners. Hi, everybody. That was a special start there. That was special. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Oh, I do know where it came from. I don't from. even know that song. That... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that is the theme song for the Monkeys TV show, which I watched quite a lot as Clearly. a child. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering, why was that on my mind? Well, I know it was on my mind because it, something came up in my YouTube feed recently of it's like behind the scenes of the Monkeys. Okay. So that was on my brain <laughs> and that just came out. That was fun. So... Here we are, um, still basking in our experience of the revealed experience. Yes. Um, and on our last episode, you asked me about highlights of my experience. Mm -hmm. I think I've used that word a few too many times. Sorry about that. But it is the revealed experience. experience. Yeah. Um, how about you? Highlights for you? Yeah. Thanks for asking. I I really enjoyed the breakout. What did we call it? Not the breakout. Breakdown. Breakdown. Thank you. We called it the breakdown session where a staff member after a keynote address would sit down with one of the speakers. We had the cameras rolling and we just had a natural flowing kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. And I got to do that with uh, Father Mike Schmitz mm -hmm. on Friday night and Jeff Cavins on Saturday night. Yeah. And there were two particular moving moments in both of those exchanges I had. I, I Father Mike Schmitz had given a talk on suffering. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I knew I was kind of stepping out, and I gave him an out if mm -hmm. he wanted to take it, because I knew it would make him kind of vulnerable. But I said, I said, Father Mike, you know, Jesus made himself known to his apostles after the resurrection by revealing his wounds to them. And his whole talk was on suffering and wounds and healing. Mm -hmm. and so it wasn't out of context, but I said, Father, do you have any, would you do, is there a particular wound in your life that you've seen the Lord minister to you in that you'd be willing in the spirit of Jesus showing his wounds, would you be willing to and I had this kind of image of him holding up his hand and mm -hmm. showing us a nail mark, so to speak. And I was moved by his response and the honesty of it. Mm -hmm. He was kind of caught off guard by the question. And he ended up saying, if I, if, if I, I mean, if I went too shallow here, how did, do you remember what he said? Well, some, he, I think it was something like some things are, are more shallow right. and, Others are more deep, and if I if I share a shallow thing, that's kind of trivializing it. But but the deeper things might be too deep too to deep share. Too deep to share, and that in a way was not avoiding my question, but mm -hmm. in a way, 
making himself vulnerable. There was a revelation. Yeah, it was a revelation that, right yeah. there. Even in his, the way he didn't want to answer my question, <laughs> he answered it in a way. And he, it was a vulnerable moment for him, for me. And I was, I'm thinking to myself, as I was like, uh-oh, I just asked the wrong question. That's going to be awkward. 15,000 people around the world are watching this live. But I thought it was it was revelatory and, and a, a beautiful way to respond to the question. Yes, I felt his love for all those watching that, yeah. you know, he, without having been prepared and feeling called to share something, that there was a risk of either, you know, being too trivial or too deep, neither one of which would have been loving. And right. I thought that yeah, was good. I like that. And then the next night when I did the break, up breakdown break <laughs> what, what did we call the it breakdown break <laughs> uh, the breakup session <laughs> yes everyone jeff cavins and i broke up on saturday night um the breakdown session with jeff cavins he had shared how richly blessed he was by the artwork of van gogh right and he wrote his thesis in graduate school on the spiritual dimension of Van Gogh. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I don't even remember exactly the question, but I asked him if he could share a little bit more. He had touched on that and kind of moved on during the talk. Yeah. And I asked him if he would share something more. And he was so vulnerable in his sharing how the artwork of Van Gogh touched him and blessed him. And he, he, he choked up. Mm -hmm. in his response. And I, I can't even remember some of the specifics of his response other than I was so grateful to him for, for being willing to, to go there and, and mm -hmm. share something deep. Um, and he said several times he had never given that talk before to an audience, and he was excited to be able to share things that he hadn't shared before. I know that experience of giving a, a new talk to an audience. Yeah. It's always fun. Yeah. So if, if, you weren't able to tune in when we went through the revealed experience a little while ago, a few weeks ago now, at the airing of this episode anyway. Go to the link in the show notes, revealedexperience.com, and find out how you can partake even now of all those great keynote addresses and those breakup sessions. What did we call them? Break out, down. Break down, up, backwards. They, we broke in those sessions. Something got broken. <laughs> and the we had these also these fun after hours conversations where you had a whole group of the speakers together answering questions and chewing the fat so to speak um, yeah check it all out at revealedexperience.com that is awesome and do you have any updates on us updates sir <laughs> up downs no 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 breakups Let's breakdowns breakthroughs do you have any updates for us about the TOB institute right yes. now yes yes i do I want to point people to the list of summer courses, both online and in person. I mentioned them by name in the last episode. Uh, I won't go through that again, but check out the link in the show notes for the list of our courses. What I want to mention by name and encourage you to consider prayerfully, I know there's somebody out there right now mm. who's going to think, yep, I should do that. We are going on a very exciting pilgrimage in August. This is 2022. Uh, August 2022, we are going to Spain and Portugal. 
We're going to start off in Fatima. We're going to unfold the connection between theology of the body and the messages of Fatima, the, the prophecies of Fatima, the secrets of Fatima, the, the tragedies that Mary predicted would unfold. We're living through them today. And the mysterious connection of St. John Paul II's theology of the body with the message of Fatima. We're going to be breaking that open in Fatima. Then we're going to be journeying to Spain and following in the footsteps of St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. And I am working on the study guides right now, the study guide for the pilgrimage right now. I'll be doing some catechesis each day on the pilgrimage. And I've been revisiting St. Teresa of Avila's autobiography. And oh my gosh, so human, so rich, so encouraging, so illuminating. We're going to be diving into that. We're going to be diving into John of the Cross. And these two figures are often mentioned by name by John Paul II as inspirations for his own interior journey, particularly John of the Cross. And they became no doubt uh, inspiration for his theology of the body. So we're going to be unpacking that as well on the pilgrimage. I know somebody's out there right now thinking, I'd really love to go on that. Well, here's what I suggest. Put that as an intention in the womb of Our Lady of Fatima. If she wants it to happen, she'll give birth to it and ask John on the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila to intercede for you, Mm. to allow you, if it's meant to be, for you to join us on that pilgrimage. We'll have a link in the show notes for you to learn more about the pilgrimage would be so blessed if you wanted to join us. Mm. And now our first question from a patron. This is from Michaela. Hello, Michaela. I'm a convert to Catholicism from Lutheranism, and I just celebrated my seventh year in the church. Congratulations. So glad that you have come home, Michaela. Mm. Bless you. Christopher, your teaching through the podcast and your online TOB courses has been used by God to untwist many of the twisted ideas about marriage and the body I had been taught. Since joining the Catholic Church in 2015, I've been attracted to the Dominican order. In 2020, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but Mm. I've been working through my diagnosis with my therapist and psychologist and Thanks be to God, through therapy and medication, I found a new peace and joy in my life. Thank you, Lord. As my attraction to the Dominican order kept growing, I decided I should step out in faith and talk to a vocations director. During the conversation, she made it clear that I would not be allowed to discern with this specific Dominican congregation because of my mental health diagnosis. And she hinted that I wouldn't be welcome to discern with most congregations. After our conversation, she did kindly suggest that I might be called to marriage. I'm feeling so crushed and rejected, but also confused. How can the church refuse to allow me to join a religious order because of how difficult religious life would be with a mental health disorder, yet allow me to get married with mental health issues? How does mental health play into theology of the body? Am I even allowed to get married with bipolar disorder? Michaela, there's a particular insight 
in the way you asked this question that I, I think is, first of all, comes from a, a place of, of a deep understanding in your heart about the relationship between the celibate vocation and the married vocation that is often missed by people. I'd like to comment on that first and then say a few things about mental illness, uh, not as a psychologist or therapist because I'm neither, but, but as one who's somewhat knowledgeable about you know, church issues, uh, maybe I can shine a light that might be helpful. Please, Lord. Anyway, so let me first address what I thought was very insightful here. In many, many ways, more ways than not, the gifts that are necessary for the celibate life and for the married life overlap. And it is a certain maturity in understanding what St. John Paul II calls the spousal meaning of the body. What is the spousal meaning of the body? We live in a world today that says the body has no meaning. The Catholic Church proclaims that the body reveals ultimate meaning, because ultimate meaning is the call to love as God loves. And the call to love as God loves is chiseled by God right in the sexual difference. Anyone familiar with my teachings and my writings, you've heard me say this many, many times. Here I go, I'm going to say it again. A man's body makes no sense by itself. A woman's body makes no sense by itself. But seen in light of each other, unless we are blind, and this is the world we live in today, blind, Lord, open our eyes to recognize in the sexual difference the call to love through the sincere gift of self. This is my body given up for you. Let it be done to me according to your word. This is the spousal meaning of the body as revealed in Jesus and in Mary. Right? This is my body given up for you. Let it be done unto me according to your word. This is giving and receiving love, receiving and giving. We mentioned this in the last episode, that the giving and receiving of love, which is revealed right in our anatomy, look at the anatomy, it's the man's body called to give that seed of life. It's the woman's anatomy that reveals the call to open and receive. But in receiving, she becomes a gift, and in giving, he receives her gift. So the giving and receiving interpenetrate, we said in the last episode, so much so that the giving becomes receiving, the receiving becomes giving. The spousal meaning of the body understood in this way, the call to love as God loves, the call to love divinely in a life-giving communion of persons is at the foundation both of married life and of the celibate life. And if, and here's where you are so insightful and so correctly insightful, Michaela, in saying, wait a minute, if I am not fit, according to this order that you visited, to become a, a Dominican nun, am I fit to be a wife and a mother? You are on it, girl. You are feeling deep in your, in your gut, in your soul, in your deepest being. You are feeling that both vocations flow from that same truth 
chiseled by God in your body, that you are, in one way or another, called to be a wife and a mother. It's so important that we understand the deep complementarity of these vocations. And I want to comment here also about the light that this shines on the misguided notion that if priests were just allowed to marry, we wouldn't have the sexual problems that priests face. Hold on, hold on. Celibacy does not cause sexual problems. Unchastity causes sexual problems. To, to say the solution is for these men who are unchaste to begin with, to bring that unchastity into their marriage as if somehow marriage makes unchastity justifiable, is to misunderstand the whole conundrum and the whole problem from the get-go. And what I'm trying to say is, Michaela, you are understanding this properly from the get-go. If mental illness, and that's an if, and we'll address this next, if mental illness is an impediment to the celibate vocation, it may well be the same impediment in the marital vocation because of how much these two vocations overlap in terms of the dispositions and the gifts and the maturity and the virtues that are required in living both out. So well done, Michaela. You understand that. You feel that in your bones. So let's now address if mental illness could be a block to your vocation. And fundamentally, in the broadest sense of that term vocation, we must say, no, it is not a block. What is the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being? Here I quote John Paul II. The fundamental and innate vocation of every human being is to love, to learn how to love as God loves. Is mental illness a fundamental impediment to that calling? No. There are canonized saints with mental illness. Uh, one right off the top of my head is um, St. Therese of Lisieux's father, canonized saint who was in a mental, mental institution with mental illness. There are many others, this is documented, um, many other saints who had some form of mental illness. So we must affirm, Michaela, and know it in your bones as well as you understood the other point, that no, there is no mental illness that in and of itself could prevent you from learning what it means to love as God loves. Will there be certain challenges to that vocation because of mental illnesses, particular burdens, uh, a particular heavy cross that you might be being asked to carry as a result of mental illness? Certainly there, there, there could be and probably would be. But in the invitation to carry that cross, you are not alone. You are intimately united with Jesus in that burden, in that sorrow, in that struggle. And in embracing that cross with Jesus, you are there fulfilling your fundamental and innate vocation, which is learning how to love as Jesus loves, which means an ever deeper union with Jesus, enabling us to love as Jesus loves. Wendy, what are your thoughts? I think that's beautiful. I just want to add for Michaela, as you are kind of coming out of the the difficulty of that encounter at the Dominican 
uh, congregation you visited. I just, I, I hope that you can come to a place of wanting to maybe pray for that order. And there could be a need for a follow-up conversation with that specific vocation director. If, if it would be helpful for you to, after a time of prayer and reflection, just, just hear more the why behind that comment. Um, I don't know a lot about the lives of women religious. I really don't. It's not, you know, a an area that I have a lot of contact with. And I don't know what the struggles are of religious orders in terms of their commitment to care for all of their members and the challenges they may have experienced at different times as a result of knowing of, you know, particularly difficult situations. I really, I can't answer that myself, but I do wonder about it. And I, I feel like as, as you're, um, you know, coming to the Lord with just that need to know how much He loves you and has made you to love, as Christopher has just shared, that you could come to a place of of really wanting to just understand more what's what was going on there. And if there's a persistent sense in you that you do have a religious vocation, you know, that the Lord would reveal to you how you can live that yes, out. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, those are my thoughts. We, I just want to mention that we, you and I, Wendy, walked with someone with mental illness who just recently died uh, a few months ago, and we had a seven-year journey of getting to know him. He was elderly and um, was, was in many ways, because of the severity of his mental illness, was in many ways not able to participate in some of the what in a general sense we would consider normal life activities uh, because of his mental illness. He was homebound most of the time, afraid to go out. Uh, he was not able to marry. So there, I just want to acknowledge there are cases of, of severe mental illness that, that have some really painful consequences. But we also experienced his genuine humanity and we're richly blessed by knowing him. I, I just kind of feel a lump coming in my throat as I'm talking about him. Um, he was a blessing to us. Mm -hmm. And we know in many ways in the relationship, uh, it seemed as if we were the blessing to him. But the homily at his funeral was was very illuminating to me. I, I came in contact with this person because I knew very well his brother who died uh, seven years ago. And his brother had asked me to just do what I could to help with his mentally ill brother. And at the homily, the priest who gave the homily at his funeral just a few months ago mentioned how much this person who had just died had blessed this other person, the brother that I knew for much longer. And I had always looked at that relationship as the older brother was the one blessing his brother with mental illness. And I had been so blessed by the older brother, I was brought to tears during that homily to hear the priest say, 
it went the other direction. Mm -hmm. That the one with the mental illness shaped and formed and blessed his older brother. And I then was the direct beneficiary over nearly 20 years of knowing that older brother who had been shaped by his younger brother's mental illness. Just to say, the Lord uses all of this in ways surprising, beautiful, painful, but it's all given to the Lord in such a way that our sufferings are no obstacle to the Lord working out his beautiful plan, and it all gets glorified. And you get little tastes of it even here. Just wanted to share that. Mm, so true. Our next question is from a listener named Emily. Hello, Emily. I was present at your talk at St. Alphonsus Parish in Chicago this past April. Oh, Thank you. You're so welcome. So glad you were there. I want to especially thank you for making it clear that the Eucharist is God's radical gift of himself to his bride, the church. That he is our source and summit, and his Trinitarian mystery provides the framework for understanding ourselves, our bodies, and our relationships. She was paying attention. She did. (laughs) A thought came to me during your talk. You know when St. Paul speaks of not discerning the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the the verses, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. I think this is an interesting moment because St. Paul could be both speaking of the real presence and relationships between members of his body, the church. Yeah. But then these two things, Christ's real presence in the Eucharist and real and authentic communion among members of his body, are intimately related. All this to say, I wonder if our blindness to the real presence is related to our frequent failure to see one another, as you spoke about in your talk, to not just look, but see. That is, I wonder if being sensitive to Christ, hidden but truly present in the Eucharist, goes hand in hand with being sensitive to his being truly present in every human being. If we have eyes to see him in the little white host, surely we are at least better prepared to see him in the soul of any person he brings across our path. What do you think about this? Emily, wow. That's what I have to say about this. (laughs) I mean, not only were you paying attention, but you are really receiving in your heart the very heart of what I was seeking to communicate in that event that you came to a few months ago. And it's evidence, all that you shared in what you unfolded here in your question is evidence of a deep work and movement of the Holy Spirit already in your life, giving you, Emily, eyes to see. I would put it to you this way, Emily, as the Lord put it to Peter, flesh and blood have have not revealed this to you, but your Father in heaven. Mm. Really, Emily, I, I want to underscore, you are swimming in deep waters here, and, and nobody jumps in those waters on his or her own. You are led there by the Holy Spirit, and you are led there through sorrows, sufferings, trials, that serve to purify and give us a vision of the world more and more clearly as it really is. Let me comment 
first on that passage about receiving the body worthily and then how it ties into human relationships. And then we'll go the other direction. Wendy, keep me on track here because I'm feeling the layers in my brain okay. that I need to, the files here that I need to keep tracking. If okay. I forget, loop me back around. So first we're going to go from the body of the Lord to the bodies of his members and human relationships. Then we're going to go from human relations, relationships back to the body of the Lord. And Wendy, you're going to make sure I do that. I'm taking notes. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so Paul says, as you shared with us, Emily, uh, if we if we receive the body of the Lord unworthily, we 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 are eating and drinking our condemnation. We can apply that right away, and I often have applied this over the years in my presentations to the relationship of of husband and wife. Uh, really and truly, the mystery of Eucharist and marriage come together powerfully, potently, in Ephesians chapter five where St. Paul links the one flesh union of a married couple with the one flesh union of Christ and the church. Paul says the union of man and woman in one flesh is a great mystery, and it refers to the union of Christ and the church. Christ is the bridegroom who says to his bride, this is my body given up for you. It's a spousal mystery. The Eucharist, John Paul II says, is the sacrament of the bridegroom and of the bride. I just read an article recently that was making rounds in Catholic circles online. A, a somewhat, you know, prominent Catholic thinker basically denying this, uh, saying, I'm not comfortable with this spousal imagery in the Eucharist. It's not spousal, it's a meal. Well, yeah, it's a meal, but what kind of meal is it? It's a wedding feast. Blessed mm -hmm. are those called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. <laughs> it, it Put it this way, it is easier to eschew, to reject, the spousal symbolism so present in the Eucharist. It's easier to reject it than it is to deal with whatever fears, difficulties, struggles we have with that spousal imagery. Okay, so I have struggles with that spousal imagery. I reject the spousal imagery. How about instead of rejecting the spousal imagery, we say, Lord, can you shine your light on why that spousal imagery in the Eucharist may be making me uncomfortable? That's the path to healing. That's the path to entering into the deepest dimensions of the Eucharist. John Paul II says in his document, Mulieris Dignitatum, on the dignity and vocation of women, he says that the spousal dimension of Christ's love for the church is revealed as the definitively the, the prominent way of understanding scripturally Christ's love for us. Uh, that scripture gives definitive prominence to the spousal dimension of Christ's love in the Eucharist. Well, there it is. There it is. Let's wrestle with that. Let's let's uh, expose to the light if we have issues or hang-ups or fears, and, and particularly as men, this one author I'm mentioning who had an issue with it is a man. Believe me, I get it as a man. How do I understand myself as a bride receiving the Eucharist? How do I reckon with the fact that John of the Cross, one of the greatest mystics of the tradition, said, Something like, Lord, you make me feel like a woman. 
and that was not a threat to his masculinity. Uh, and I often say this to the men, and I'm getting a little bit far afield here, but here I am, so I'm going to address it. The purpose of the spousal imagery of being bride here is to get the creature in his true posture, whether it's a male or a female, which is one of receptivity. Guys, if it funks you out or wigs you out to imagine yourself as a bride, okay, let's use a different image, but put us in the same receptive posture. Jesus is the quarterback, and you are the wide receiver. Get yourself wide open, because <laughs> Jesus is going to throw you a pass, all right? If we can understand that, we can stay that in that imagery and not have our masculinity threatened, eventually we can also enter that spousal dimension and realize in spousal imagery we're all bride. Shouldn't be a threat. Okay, that was all in a little bit of a rabbit trail, but those issues came up, so I didn't want to skirt them. Now I'm coming back to that passage. If we eat and drink the body of Christ unworthily, we eat and drink our own condemnation. Let's apply that to husband and wife. A husband and a wife who receive one another unworthily. Just as in receiving the Eucharist unworthily, there's a ripple effect, negative ripple effect, on the whole reality of our Christian life. So too, when a husband and a wife receive one another unworthily in their marriage bed, for example, rendering their union sterile would be one clear example. Not the only example, but I'm just reaching for one that's very clear. That is receiving one another unworthily. That is, that is mocking the sacrament. That is turning the sacrament into something sacrilegious. That is going to have a negative ripple effect in the whole reality of that couple's relationship. Conversely, let's go the other direction. When we receive Christ worthily in the Eucharist, the consummate expression of our, our union with Jesus, that has a positive ripple effect on our whole relationship with Jesus. Analogously, when a husband and a wife receive one another in their broken humanity, they're never perfect, but they open that broken humanity to the mercies of the Lord. That's what Paul means by receiving husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, or in this other letter in the context here, applying the analogy, receiving one another worthily. doesn't mean perfectly, but worthily, recognizing our need for God's mercy, our brokenness, and opening that to the Lord. When a husband and wife come nakedly, truly nakedly, before one another and before the Lord in their union, receiving one another worthily in that sense, that also has a positive ripple effect in the whole reality of their relationship. So this is going from the Eucharist to human, the human relationship of husband and wife. John Paul II says the analogy goes in the other direction as well. Not only does the Eucharist shine a bright light on marriage, but marriage shines a bright light on the Eucharist. Let's go the other direction. This is why only a man can confer the Eucharist. Because in conferring the Eucharist, that's the role of the bridegroom. It is the bridegroom who gives the seed, who gives the body. It is the bride who opens to receive the body of the bridegroom and conceive divine life within her. 
when we fail to understand the marital relationship, the difference of husband and wife, and why the difference of male and female is absolutely essential to the marital relationship itself. When we fail to understand that, we will fail to understand the liturgy. We will fail to understand, for example, why only a man can be a priest. Where do men train to be a priest? In the seminary. Why? What are they learning to do in the seminary? They're learning to be spiritual fathers. But in order to be capable of being a father in the spirit, you must be capable of being a father in the flesh. Only men give the seed. Only men inseminate. Only men properly, when we understand the real meaning of the word, only men can train in the seminary. I think this would be even more illuminating and more clear if, if religious sisters, for example, if we were to call their house of training, as you know, people usually laugh when I say it, and it's kind of comical, but it's also very profound. <laughs> I think we should call it the ovinary, <laughs> right? Because it shows the difference. Only men can be fathers. Only women can be mothers. Mm. This is the purpose of the sexual difference. This is the, the natural end of the marital union is to make a man a father and a woman a mother. What is true in the natural order, grace does not erase it perfects, right? Grace perfects nature. The Eucharist is the supernatural perfection of the natural reality of marriage. When we understand this, we see how the marital relationship illuminates gloriously the Mass and the Eucharist. Guess what? Among the many things we can conclude from all of this, there is a direct relationship between the sexual chaos that is rampant in the church and the world and the liturgical chaos that is rampant in the church. The two stand or fall together, right? Look, look at the last 60 years of, of church life and the tragic liturgical confusion. Well, what's been happening at the very same time in the last 60 years? Rampant sexual confusion. It's kind of a chicken and an egg situation, like which comes first, the sexual confusion or mm -hmm. the liturgical confusion? Uh, there could be debates about that, but this is for sure. You can't fix one without fixing the other. Mm -hmm. That's how closely intertwined these two mysteries are. In fact, John Paul II says, it, of, it is of special merit to St. Paul that he brought these two mysteries. What mysteries? The mystery of the marriage of man and woman and the mystery of the marriage of Christ and the church. He brought these two mysteries together and made of them one great mystery. In other words, in Ephesians 5, there is a marriage of these two marriages. What does this mean? When we are confused about the marriage of man and woman, we are confused about the marriage of Christ and the church. Guess who knows this very well? The enemy. This is why he attacks the relationship of man and woman, because what he's really after is the relationship of Christ and the church. And the two, to what? Relationship of man and woman and the relationship of Christ and the church. The two have been made one. Attack the one, you attack the other. How are we doing? Oh my, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that was helpful. That's the thumbnail sketch of the mega mystery that we're invited mm. to enter 
in John Paul II's teaching. And this is why, you know, being, being at this for more than 25 years, I don't tire of it because the mystery gets deeper and mm. deeper and deep. That's the whole nature of mysteries. The more you know, the more you know there's more to know. Mm -hmm. There's more. There's always more. Any thoughts, Wendy? I just struck by um, two different translations of that verse from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, um, where you were quoting where he talked about receiving unworthily. And um, Emily quoted a translation that said, um, eat and drink without discerning the mm, body. Mm. And just kind of reflecting on that as you were talking, that there are two translations of the same sentiment. Yes, I don't yes. know which one is more literal. Um, but there's something profound just to look at those two translations. Yeah, agreed. When you were talking, say, at your Made for More event that Emily attended in Chicago about um, come, come and become one who, who sees, sees. Um, and I think that becoming one who sees was kind of reminding Emily of discerning, discerning the body. The yeah, body. Yeah. yeah, good connection. And I think there's something also about the translation that says receive unworthily. And I think it could be really helpful to those of us who've been looked at rather than seen mm -hmm. to recognize that what is to be seen here is glorious. Wow. And yes. those who don't see it, don't discern the body, Amen, are not worthy of that gift that the Lord has given in, in you and in me and in all of our listeners, that there's an unworthiness in that looking but not seeing, unworthiness yes. to truly receive the gift. So I don't know, all that was just kind of striking me as as you were sharing about that. I'm so glad you, you picked up on that. Um, and that was a, a kind of thread in her question that is important to, to address at least briefly here. And I, I, I begin the whole night of the Made for More event by the way, if you want to bring a made for more event to your area, <laughs> check out the link in the show notes. Um, I begin the whole made for more event by reflecting on this passage from the Gospels where Jesus says, they look but do not see. Mm. And I ask my audience, do you prefer to be looked at or do you prefer to be seen? And I ask the women in particular because they, they intuit this so quickly. I say, ladies, do you prefer when a guy looks at you or when a guy sees you? And the answer is obvious, but it, it reveals a profound truth and a very important distinction. And when we are merely looking, and I'm building on what you said here, Wendy, we are not discerning the body. Mm -hmm. We are not discerning that the body reveals a great mystery. What great mystery? The body, male and female, is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. We look, but we do not see. The invitation of the gospel is, as Christ himself says, come and become one who sees. And we are all the blind man in the gospel who has to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. Mm -hmm. Let's start there. If, if my long-winded answer here just sounded like a bunch of theological word salad to you, I invite you to this, this very simple gospel prayer. Jesus, 
son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. Open my eyes. Open my eyes, Lord. Show me the wonders that are all around me, especially in the people who are closest to me. Open my eyes so that I might see. That's the beginning of a long, difficult, beautiful journey that ends in glory. Amen. Our next question is from a listener named Deborah. Hi, Deborah. I'm a nursing student in New Zealand in the middle of a clinical assignment. I wonder if you can give me some guidance from a Catholic point of view. One of the things that I've come across is patients coming in who are transitioning genders and are needing to be given an injection to aid in this process. As a nurse, I do not mind caring for these people as it is important to treat them as a human. I just wonder about my role in administering the medication to aid the transition. Bless you, Deborah. Bless you, Deborah. Bless you, Deborah. Woo, man, there's just more and more and more very difficult situations that people are of people of faith are being put in here. And I'm so glad that you're even concerned enough to to bring it up. because uh, there are many people who just are kind of going with the flow. I, I want to zoom in on this word, which is the appropriate word. I want truly to care for these people. You said, I, I, I don't mind caring for these people. I want to care for these people. That's the whole purpose of medicine, is to care for people, to, to offer health care. Mm -hmm. But in a world that has no fixed reference point of truth versus lies, goodness versus evil, things get upside down. And we can call those things that are direct killing life, taking life, damaging life, harming life. We end up calling that health care. I mean, even as I said that, I, was, I felt like a, a gag reflex. Mm -hmm. To call the taking of life, to calling the calling the maiming of life, calling the 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 damaging of life, care is diabolic. It's an upside down world. And I, I'm going to say it plainly first, and then maybe we can talk about pastoral implications here or something. But let me just say it plainly: to inject hormones into someone to block their natural God-given hormones, to, to further the illusion that a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man, is not health care. It is the opposite. It is damaging to that person's health. It is the direct opposite of health care. So, Deborah, if your desire is to care for these people, truly, you cannot play any direct role in injecting those hormones into these people, because it is not health care. 
that immediately puts you in a very difficult situation. Evil has its way so long as good people are not willing to stand up against it, even when that costs us. We have to stand up against it. I don't know the practicals in your life here, Deborah. I don't know what would happen if one day you just stood up and said, I can't do this anymore. But I do think you have to really take seriously uh, what action you may be called to take, looking for a different job, looking for a health care provider who shares your faith. You, you, you can't, in good conscience, continue to be a participant in calling health care what is actually health damage. Uh, and I know that puts you in a tight spot. Um, Christ is with you in that tight spot. Wendy, what are your thoughts here? I am impressed with the question as you are, and I'm surprised it's the first time I'm really thinking about it, honestly. I've known about, um, obviously, this kind of, you know, incredible increase in the amount of people that are seeking this kind of, quote, care. And I used to be a nurse, and yet I've never kind of imagined myself, what are the situations where that actual, you know, treatment is being given. And it, I think in somehow in my mind, it was sort of in this separated clinic right, dedicated right. to that. But I'm realizing from the question, no, Deborah's just on a clinical assignment. She's right. probably just working a floor in the hospital. Maybe somebody's had a, a surgery or, you know, something that you would care for a person afterwards. And this is part of their medications, you know. Right. And it's insightful of Deborah even to recognize yeah, yeah, is. what is the purpose of this? And can I participate in this? Can you participate in caring for someone's wounds and their need for hydration and all those things that we care for? Yes. Yes. But this in a particular way, the nurse being the administrator of it, it it's a it's a challenging thing as a nurse. I encountered it in the few years that I worked as a nurse back in the mid-1990s, just in terms of like nurses administering um, Depo-Provera, which is a contraceptive, right. you know, and I only on a few occasions when I was like floated, because it wasn't my normal assignment, to a postpartum floor or to an OBGYN office, did I have to say, okay, I will work here, but I will not give yeah. this injection. And just allow the supervisor to handle that in whatever way. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So they have to adjust um, what whether they have someone else give it or whatever. I'm, you know, I just know that I'm not going to participate. But then this is a whole new level of um, concern with these hormones being given by injection. So, Deborah, I think you are right on in your just discernment of where there's a line between genuinely caring for a person's needs as they pre are presented to you today. That's what we do as nurses. Like I come into work and here's my assignment and I, you know, care for the people that are given. And there's something beautiful about that. And yet 
you know, you've just really had that good insight to say, I have to have a certain boundary. I have to not participate in that, which is, you know, contrary to the teaching of the church. And this is an example of that. Lord, you know full well the people out there who are in really difficult situations because of these pressures being put on the medical professionals because of a misguided vision of what it means to be human. Lord, we ask you, please, please guide Deborah in this difficult place. Guide every medical professional to see the true dignity of the person and the true meaning of the word health care, where we have been deceived, where we have participated in a culture of death, where we have participated and aided and abetted a false vision of what it means to be human in any way, Lord, we ask your mercy. We ask your mercy. Holy God, holy mighty one, holy immortal one, have mercy on us and on the whole world. Show us who we really are. Show us the true meaning of being a man or a woman made in the image and likeness of God. Show us the true meaning of being a gift. And give us the grace to become what we are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.